to the Experto Crude podcast. I'm your host, Lee Silverberg, and today I'm very excited to have a good friend of mine, Yura Chang, on with me to talk about her note. Her note is entitled, in part, Willful Blindness to the Bar Exam. Thanks for having us, Yura. I'm glad to have you on. Awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So um, before we begin, I always like to talk about the background and the writing process to the paper. And I think that it's a really important thing to understand when readers go about the actual reading. But of course, we don't get that from the text. So I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself, your own background, and how you came to write this piece. Yeah, for sure. So um, in my past life, before I was a law student, um, I worked in education policy and parent organizing around education issues. Um, and before that, uh, my like undergraduate education and research um, was around these ed policy and so ed policy topics and so these questions of equity and how we um, address these inequities in our educational institutions and how we um, are addressing these problems to make sure that um, how we teach students is more inclusive and meet students where they at. Um, these are all topics that have been really have always been very interesting for me. And so this note presented a really great opportunity to dive into some of those questions, but in the context of the law in law school, which was really salient for me, obviously, because I am still a law student. I'm in my third year here at the U. Um, and I was really fortunate to work with a, an incredible note and comment editor named Seiko Shastri, who suggested that I speak to Professor David Schultz. Um, and he kind of tipped me off as my advisor um, to the potential to, excuse me, the history of, of the American Bar Association, this sort of exclusionary history that um, the Bar Association has had. And as I was diving into the research of it, um, the topic of the bar exam as this gatekeeper to the legal profession kept on coming up because this is a topic that has been discussed for, for many years. Um, and I thought that with the pandemic and states being kind of forced to question their reliance on the bar exam, whether they wanted to keep this traditional format, um, those questions were really relevant. And so it seemed like a really good time to kind of dive into this topic. Well, I'm glad that you wrote it. <laughs> Going back maybe to the beginning, the full title of the note is Barring Entry to the Legal Profession, How the Law Condones Willful Blindness to the Bar Exam's Racially Disparate Impacts. And I think that the title in full is actually really, I would say, very both intuitive and informative. And your article really walks through the origins of the bar exam and the words that came into my mind first were, yikes, and then, oh, no. Mm -hmm. And I kind of saw, as the article went along, exactly what you were pointing to. And so I'm curious, was that your reaction? Did you come into it knowing that that was probably what you were going to find? And after writing it as a kind of a retrospective, you know, how do you still see the, um, the ethicality of the issue? Yeah, so... This history was was really interesting because the rise of the bar exam or the the rise in how many states were starting to use the bar exam as um, as a, a as a method of admitting new lawyers to the profession coincides also with the rise of and the and the power and influence of the ABA, the American Bar Association, and other state bars, um, and that is all happening during the nineteenth and twenty early twentieth centuries where 
what a coincidence. It's also an increase in the number of Jewish, black lawyers, immigrants who are entering into the legal profession. Um, and there's a lot of really racist and inflammatory language that is used to justify creating these bar associations and creating these what was termed then as sort of like higher standards to to the to the legal profession. Um, you know, the purpose was to improve the reputation of lawyers to keep the profession respectable. Um, and I've and I've used the word coded before to describe some of the rhetoric being used, but some of this language just straight up isn't coded at all. It's pretty explicit. Um, I talk about. Uh, the the dean of the U Chicago Law School who in 1911 you know publicly wrote this letter he's supporting a minimum college requirement um, and he's literally saying you know we want to reduce hereafter the spawning mass of promiscuous semi intelligence which now enters the bar like there's no coding there at all um, and and it's interesting because I think in the modern day age you know today like yes many professions require a college requirement um, or they require you to to have gone to college a college degree and um, but it's just when you're comparing it to the language that's being used back then and and like that 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 was the language used to justify um, moving from diploma privilege which is where you know as soon as you finish law school you can practice you practice the law without going without taking the bar exam um, so moving towards bar exams from diploma privilege um, and also mandatory school accreditation. So like you need to have gone to a certain school that's been accredited by the ABA before you can take the bar exam. You know, these are standards that were being kind of justified with language like this, you know, in the early 20th century. And, and those are standards that still exist today. Um, so again, like I understand sort of this consumer protection argument lawyers have a lot of social standing the clients are entrusting a lot of trust in their in their lawyers um but it's really hard to take that consumer protection argument seriously or believe that that was really the only kind of impetus for this movement and how we're uh and how we're accepting lawyers to the bar um when you've got language like this that's out there so not i was surprised by how blatant some of the quote-unquote coded language was but I'm not surprised by the legacy, especially when you consider that in 2020, um, 86% of lawyers were white. Jumping to the present, as you might say so aptly put there, the current passage rates, empirical data shows continuing disparate impact from the bar exam. I know that uh, we go to a really wonderful law school, but our law schools also had conversations around um, you know, demographics mm-hmm. and diversity. I think they've been fairly intense conversations at some points that are very meaningful. And I think that those conversations are probably, though I have no experience with other law schools, probably being had at law schools around the country. Do you think the data speaks for itself on not necessarily any one particular law school, but law schools generally, or just bar passage rate generally for individuals entering the legal field? Or is there more to it than just the data? Right. So, the issue, one of the issues I see right now and that I kept coming across in my research is that there isn't a lot of disaggregated data on who is passing the bar exam. Um, California is the only state that's releasing regularly after each bar administration a demographic breakdown of how many students are passing the bar in their state. Um, and New York does intermittently. But the numbers coming out of California are 
pretty outrageous. I just looked it up. They just released the numbers from the February 2021 um, bar exam, and 80.7% of white test takers passed on their first try. And in comparison, 49.6% of black test takers, 63.1% of Hispanic test takers, and 58.1% of Asian test takers passed on the first try. So that was a lot of numbers, but I, I think you can kind of easily see there's this pretty huge gap that's happening there. Um, and note that American Indian and other Native groups don't even get their own category because I think it's a very small number of those who are who are even getting to law school, unfortunately, based on some of these other barriers that we'll talk about. Um, but there, there, there are no, but there aren't a lot of numbers out there, and I think that it's it's really tough for any bar association, any state bar association, to say that they're really addressing these inequities and 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 the big racial gaps and who's practicing the law. Um, if you don't have the numbers to really back it up, um, and it, I think it's showing that not only are you looking at those numbers and and seeing this problem on its face, but that because of that, you aren't able to look at the more underlying reasons, you know, there's, you know, there's no, I'm not suggesting at all that like student or test takers of color are just not able to pass the bar. They're not competent to pass the bar, become lawyers. Um, There's already so many other social and racial um, underlying reasons, right? Like, you know, students of color in law school are much more likely to have to take out loans. Um, and and law school is extremely expensive. And when you think about how expensive and time consuming it is to, to take and study for the bar exam, um, you've got to pay maybe up to several thousand dollars to buy a bar to purchase a bar prep program. Um, you have to probably take almost two months off if you want to be able to study full time. And those are those are luxuries that a lot of students can't can't take on. Um, And so I think that, you know, this is those numbers really do speak on its face. But also there aren't a lot of numbers out there. So it's kind of questionable how we're even going to address these inequities head on if we don't have the data to back them. Jumping off that point just a little bit. I think that the idea that the bar exam is not in itself alone the only thing that's prohibiting test takers, but the things that surround it that we've kind of built into it isn't necessarily a, I think it's an invisible point sometimes for individuals who come from a privileged background who can take, let's say, the two months off just to study and then go take the test and move on in comparison to individuals who they might not see because, you know, they're, they're studying, who have to go and actually work or have to take on extra loans, or cannot afford to do so, and are essentially precluded from engaging with the bar exam in their best, almost, uh, their setting, right? mm-hmm. the best environment possible, the one that's most conducive to them passing. And I'm curious if, in your mind at least, that's an indication of a failure on the part of the bar exam to deal with, I would say, a more modern view of who's going to law school, the needs of the student, mm-hmm. as opposed to this I would say, very reductive view of saying, oh, well, clearly this means that they actually just aren't as good at taking the test, which I think both of us would agree that's obviously not true. Absolutely. And and you're seeing, and, and I think that's the justification for the bar exam is, you know, some people really believe that a standardized test 
is the most equitable way of deciding um, whether or not someone is competent to practice the law. You know, it's a test that everybody takes. They control the the testing environment. Um, But like you're saying, that really is showing a little bit of blindness. That's a word I use a lot in my note to those underlying issues. And I think it's that sort of rationale is based on an assumption that every student that is coming to law school is coming from the same or similar background. Um, and just this reliance on on that viewpoint is harming a lot of students. And, and I would argue it's really harming our legal profession as well. Let's talk about willful blindness as a concept. That's, like you said, something that shows up in your note quite a lot. And I thought it was a really helpful descriptor. It gave me the language that I needed to really talk about and dissect the issue. So I, I want to give you the floor here. Can you tell me about it and help me understand a little better? Yeah. So will, willful blindness, I was really inspired by two legal concepts that are pretty well known. The first is this idea of intentional blindness, um, which was a term coined by Ian Haney Lopez. He's a prominent legal scholar on how racism has evolved in the law. Um, And so he uses intentional blindness to describe the racial jurisprudence of of courts in remaining intentionally blind to racial context when they're deciding these discrimination cases. Um, And then I'm also pulling from the concept of willful ignorance, which is a well-known concept in criminal law. It's describing someone who intentionally keeps themselves unaware of certain facts so that they can avoid liability. And I use willful blindness to kind of combine those two terms and ideas to describe both courts um, and what the legal profession is doing when faced with their history of their being and and of the disparate impacts of the bar exam. Um, and, and it's pretty egregious, I think, when you look at even the American Bar Association's website, you know, one of their three main objectives, I don't know how many objectives they have, but one of their few objectives is to eliminate bias and enhance diversity. Um, And so the messaging is out there. And we saw that, especially after George Floyd's murder here in Minneapolis, like the onslaught of diversity, equity initiatives of how do we support people of color? And and those are all and education projects. And I think that those are all extremely important. Um, But also shows a little bit of blindness to me that, we're not looking at these larger structural uh, institutions such as the bar exam that are shown to have highly disparate impacts based on the race of the test taker. Um, that to me shows some willful blindness. So if I might ask, what it sounds like in some ways and what I understood a little bit from your article, your note, was that structural changes, the kinds of things that really do make an enormous impact on each individual person that might be suffering from this kind of, um, not invisible oppression, because it's very visible once you actually look for it, but Mm -hmm. um, a little bit suppressed oppression in a way, those are much harder to come by. Do you think that having more data, perhaps, or having better access to data might bring a push that's stronger for structural change that we saw, let's say, after, you know, the George Floyd riots, for example? Mm -hmm. Well, I think data is very important. And I was very frustrated in you. I I couldn't even find data on um, the demographics of lawyers within a certain state. 
Um, how many white lawyers, what, what's the percentage of white or black or Asian lawyers in Minnesota, for example? Um, so that was really frustrating. And I think that data can be very convincing. It can be really powerful in creating and in, in sort of instigating, inspiring change. At the same time, um, I don't want the focus on data to be the only thing. I think that it also takes a lot of time to collect data. And what this note is discussing is like the data out there is pretty strong enough. Um, California is one of the most diverse states in the country. Um, I think we have enough data and also enough kind of anecdotal evidence, what we're seeing around us, the lawyers that, that we're practicing with, to say like that there does need to be a change. And you know, bar associations have talked pretty openly about wanting to have a more diverse legal profession. So the 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 reasoning is sort of already there um but but not the push for again like these more structural institutional changes which data can help with but i hope it's in tandem and it's not like we need to wait for the data until we can really start having these conversations moving away from the data then i think that another thing that really stood out to me was that you walked through several cases that really did I would say elaborate on this general almost immunity of bar associations from any kind of challenge to their policies or their strategies for keeping their bar up to snuff. Mm -hmm. Could you give us some kind of background on those cases or talk about any of the cases that really stood out to you that you said, wow, okay, this is really quite the block. Yeah, it was, I found it really interesting to go through some of these federal court cases because there are a few instances where you were like, oh, the court is just getting so close to articulating what the issue is. Um, and then they kind of back away a little bit. So um, I I want to talk about Griggs, which is a really interesting case from 1971. It's, it's a Supreme Court case. It's not a 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause case, but um, it actually shows that courts have used disparate impact evidence to prove that a law is racially discriminatory. So Griggs is a case where um, the plaintiffs are black employees who are challenging a standardized general intelligence test that was being used by their employer to determine whether or not um, an employee would get a transfer. And plaintiffs are claiming that this violated Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits employer-based um, discrimination. So the court, so basically the plaintiffs were bringing evidence showing that um, the white test takers were getting way more like favorable transfers. Um, and the reason was like, well, they're just doing better on the test. Um, so the court found that even though there may have been good intent on the part of the employers, it doesn't matter if the outcome results in disparate, or it, that intent doesn't matter if the outcome is disparate impacts. And a phrase that they use, um, which is really illustrative, is fair and form discriminatory in operation. Um, so that was a really exciting outcome. Um, and then in Tyler v. Vickery, which is a case that comes out of the Fifth Circuit um, in 1975, so just a few years after Griggs, um, the plaintiffs who are um, black law graduates who have failed the bar exam in Georgia, um, they try to kind of transfer the analysis used in Griggs um, to the 14th Amendment. So they're arguing that the bar, they're challenging the bar exam's constitutionality under the 14th Amendment. And their evidence is really striking. So in July 1972, 100% of black test takers failed the Georgia bar exam. 
And then the next year, in February and July, more than 50% failed. So they're arguing, like, this evidence is pretty clear. This is pretty discriminatory. Um, and the court should use strict scrutiny, which basically would mean, you know, we're going to strike this down. Um, and the court comes out and says that, no, we need more than disparate impact. Um, and they say this really interesting thing where they're like, otherwise few legislative efforts would survive such scrutiny. And kind of just saying almost offhand, like, yeah, none of our laws, if you put them under this disparate impact kind of microscope, you're going to find that there's disparate impact and we'd have to strike them all down. Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting, like, kind of moment of self-awareness that didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. Um, and so the court goes on to use rational basis review, which, you know, they were like, okay, yeah, the state has an interest in making sure that people who are lawyers are competent. Um, and they found that this, this had a rational relationship to that, the bar exam did. Um, and one thing I want to point out is that the dissent kind of suggests, like, maybe we should look at context, you know. It's kind of interesting that after you have 100% of black test takers fail an exam, there was no investigation. There was no sort of questioning of, of you know, of what's going on here. And, and that maybe that, in addition to data, the data, could suggest what he called a systematic pattern of unequal results. Um, and that was an argument that was like, oh, it's on paper, um, it's a written dissent, and and that and that sort of is what I think I would have liked to see. I think that we would have had plenty of evidence now, almost what, 50 years later, um, to sustain sort of a, a challenge like that. Um, and I just wanted to add that Georgia still doesn't release the demographic information of their lawyers, so I assume that um, I assume that it's still pretty disproportionately a white, white bar in Georgia. If we could talk about that dissent for just a little bit and why the idea of context mattering matters. I think in many law cases that I've read, oftentimes the context of a case can be swept under just going through the facts and the law that the, the background that is often really salient is left out of the cases. But of course, in this case, the dissent really does make an effort to highlight that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that kind of background context, the circumspection, kind of aids in the analysis? Or do you think that getting rid of it in some of these cases is really how the courts are driving towards what is kind of a counterintuitive uh, conclusion, that something is okay when in reality we know that it's not? I think that there is a place for some of that more contextual evidence. And again, the court, that's, federal courts have used that sort of contextual evidence, you know, when after Brown v. Board, um, which is, you know, segregation of students based on their race is illegal, southern states immediately try to create these laws that kind of went under, kind of try to be sneaky about it, you know, we're creating laws that, you know, people are, People, school officials are going to assign students to schools um, based on certain characteristics, but they're not naming it as race. And so that's when the Supreme Court comes out and says that, well, we can also look at the intent of, of the legislation, what's the language that's being used to determine whether or not there is sort of this really insidious discriminatory intent, even if on its face it's, it's neutral. Um, and so there is... A history of the courts using context um, and I I think that without context you can look at data like 
data that's coming that was coming out of Georgia in the Tyler V. Vickery case, and you can kind of make up any sort of excuse on your own if you're not if you're not using the context, the evidence. Um, and this is also to me kind of showing just a blatant disregard for the lived experiences of these plaintiffs um, to just say that no, this is this is like meeting a rational need of the states um, and not really considering the broader landscape of what's going on. So to, I guess, to cap this off, to talk about that broader landscape, you know, I guess what's next in your mind? What do you think the right outcome for the bar exam is? And maybe if you could tell us what you think the right outcome generally is to make... Mm-hmm. You know, entering the legal profession maybe a little more equitable. I know it's a that's a big ask. Big but, question. But still. <laughs> it's a good one though. Um, my biggest. Well, I want to start by saying that my biggest regret uh, in writing this note. I started writing this note now. You know, more than a year ago. Um, is that in my conclusion, I don't upfront say that I think the solution is to abolish the bar and to move on to different methods of ensuring the competence of the people who are entering the bar. Um, and and so I'm saying it now, I guess that's how, <laughs> this is my way of making a little amendment to my own note. Um, but the exciting thing is that that is a conversation that's really happening. I think it was spurred by the COVID pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, I believe four or five states actually, temp- five states um, temporarily allowed diplo- diploma privilege. Um, and since then, it's sort of spurred more conversation around um, around what we can what we can do differently. And so, just I think about a week ago, a little more than a week ago, the Oregon Supreme Court um, they publicly supported uh, an experiential learning pathway for students and postgraduate supervised practice pathways for students in ca- in in place of using um, the bar exam. And, and that's still just like a beginning kind of stepping stone. There's still a pretty long way to go before I think Oregon would get rid of their bar exam. Um, but that's really exciting because in every state, it's the Supreme Court that is the state Supreme Court that is responsible for setting the standards. Um, so that's really, really exciting. And that conversation has been, like I said, been going on for a while. Um, Mitchell Hamlin's dean has been really open in calling for change to how we license lawyers. Um, and, I, and I just want to add that um, the, the arguments of, of the bars being an effective way of weeding out people who aren't competent or ready to practice the bar, a lot of those arguments I think don't have a lot of evidence backing them up. So for example, in 2020, um, there's a study in California showing that there's no relationship between um, how low you put a cut score, which is the score that you need on the bar exam to pass. So no relationship between the selection of a cut score and then the number of complaints, formal charges, or disciplinary actions taken against attorneys in in, in that jurisdiction. So um, just so, showing that maybe the bar isn't as accurate in determining who's going to be a good lawyer and who isn't. Um, and there are already so many, and I talk about this a little bit in my note, there are already so many different steps that law students have to take to become barred. I mean, we're experiencing that right now as three L's, the whole process of character and fitness. And, you know, I know someone that has to like send send their fingerprints to Oregon because they lived there for a few years and they need a criminal background check. And so there's a lot of 
a lot of steps already in this process. Um, and so I think that adding, you know, instead of doing the bar, we have these experiential learning pathways or alternative means. Um, we'll just show a more well-rounded, provide a more well-rounded evaluation of someone's competency than a really expensive and archaic standardized test. Um, and like I said, like students of color already go through so much just to get to law school. Not only do you have to, um, you know, you probably have student loan debt from undergrad. You have to take the LSAT, which is another standardized test. You have to take out loans. You have to survive being in a white dominated institution. And then at the end, there's just like this final boss of the bar. Um, I think we're really doing a disservice to our profession by kind of uh, letting that final barrier, um, I think, just prevent a lot of really talented people from being lawyers and being um, being our peers in the legal profession. Thank you, Yara. I really appreciate you coming on with us, and I think that's an excellent way to cap off the discussion today. And I invite everyone to go ahead and read your article in Volume 106. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Experto Crede podcast. All the opinions discussed in this podcast are the opinions solely of the authors and myself and do not reflect their institutions, nor do they reflect the opinions of the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, the Minnesota Law Review, or any other parties.